Welcome to the Software People Stories. I'm Shiv. I'm Chitra. And I'm Gaiti. We bring you interesting untold stories of people associated with the creation or consumption of software-based solutions. You'll hear stories of what worked and sometimes what didn't. You will also hear very personal experiences and insights that would trigger your thoughts and inspire you to do even greater things. In this episode, Tom Pierce, the president and founder of Integrated Information Systems, I2S, shares many in his family had been in the military service and how in his first assignment, being assigned to the analysis team because he had a background in math and computers. Grabbing an opportunity to use a computer that was lying unused and creating some simulation modeling solutions. About leaving the army in good terms and going back to school and working for a defense contractor later and leveraging that experience to solve some civilian problems. His experience of the rules and hierarchical models of working in the military were on the lighter side, he says, you cannot do anything without breaking some rules. And the examples of streaks of entrepreneurship that ran in his family that finally pushed him into entrepreneurship, which is essentially a sense of frustration about how businesses were run and having his own values and ideas of how to run a company and wanting to actually use them. Uh, not compromising on the value of working with end users and how tech fluency is a lot more important than tech savviness. We cover a lot more points. Do listen on. Hi, Tom. Welcome to the Software People Stories. Thank you, Shiv. It's a, it's a pleasure to join you in this. When um, I first uh, came to know about you, I was very curious, you know, particularly about your uh, initial stint in the military and then getting yes. into software. So I thought a good place to start would be your origin story and how you ended up in IT and then your career trajectory and, of course, uh, the interesting things that you've been doing. I appreciate that. Now, uh, certainly, I'll I'll start sort of uh, maybe in chapter two and then backtrack and fill in a gap. Okay. Um, so I went to college on an ROTC scholarship, which is a, an officer's training full ride in, in exchange for a commitment to the military. Um, in a sense, I was follow, following in my father's shoes. He was career Air Force. I had an uncle that had devoted his career uh, to the Army, both in military and in civil service, worked at the Pentagon. Mm -hmm. um, my parents and uncle are buried at Arlington National Cemetery. So mm -hmm. military service is just, just a part of my life's blood. Mm -hmm. And so the opportunity uh, to, 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 to pursue that career fascinated me. Mm -hmm. But I, I was had just completed my training, my uh, six-month training, training after college to mm -hmm. go into my specialty. And on day one, like like five minutes after I reported for duty, uh, I was informed that I had been plucked away from my initial assignment and signed to an analysis team. Oh. Well, the reason for that was I had a math background, mm -hmm. but I also had a computer background. So we're, we're, okay. we're talking 1981. So mm -hmm. there wasn't a whole lot of background to be had, <laughs> but I, I had had one class in seventh grade uh -huh. uh, when my own math teacher had never seen a computer before. And we all kind of figured it out together, uh -huh. but had been so fascinated 
that I, I still remember the day that uh, Radio Shack came oh. out with their very first handy computer. Yeah, I was there when the doors opened <laughs> and I spent the entire day trying to figure out how to get the thing to draw a circle on the screen hmm. from, from, you know, what I knew about geometry and basic hmm. programming and all of that. And, and the day was done before I realized I hadn't even gotten up to do anything. Hmm. So my fascination with computers uh, began when computers began. Mm -hmm. And so the army recognized that. And I got plucked in and sat down in this analysis team uh, my boss, who was a brilliant man, uh, happened to have one of the early desktop computers sitting on a table with a desk cover on it, nobody using it. <laughs> and so I just asked, do you mind if I use that to do wow. some of the things you're asking me to do? And, and so, for example, one of, one of the guys I learned from uh, people, you know, et etymology fascinates me too. People worry, you know, wonder why do we call it a spreadsheet? Well, mm -hmm. because he was among those that would fill an entire conference room table with graph paper. Oh. And with his adding machine and pencil sharpener, he was doing what we would now call simulation modeling, mm -hmm. old school. Wow. And so I suggested to him I could make his job easier. He was full of doubt and skepticism. Mm -hmm. And so I, I started typing and iterating and I and I'll be there when I was done with with my output, you know, mm -hmm. the old paper output type. Yeah. He sat there with his editing machine and checked every calculation I had done, <laughs> and that was the beginning of my journey into simulation modeling to support uh, the U.S. Army's missile logistics and ammunition logistics. Mm. We end up running logistics management systems, mm -hmm. and then my obligation was up. Mm -hmm. uh, and at, by that time, I figured I really wanted to pursue other careers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I had already kind of given up on the whole military leadership. I wasn't going to be a combat officer. Okay. I was fascinated in the analytical side. Mm -hmm. uh, so I actually, uh, you know, left the Army, good terms, mm -hmm. and went off to grad school. Mm -hmm. And a, a, a former Army contact came back and said, um, we've got a contract we would like your help bidding on. Okay. And it, it, it turned out to be a continuation of the work I had done in the Army. Hmm. And so working for that contractor led to me starting my own business in defense contracting. Mm -hmm. And the the thing that has just stayed with me the whole time is that when I pick up a computer, it's because I've got something I want to do with it. Hmm. I've got a problem I want to solve. Mm -hmm. I, I'm not, never have I been trying to make money by by writing software that somebody might want to buy. Okay. I've just always had problems that people have worked with people I know needed mm -hmm. to solve. And that's a really useful tool to have. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, they become just exponentially more useful mm -hmm. if you can even begin to keep up. Mm -hmm. So that blend of using the technology to help solve problems in the military um, just grew and grew and grew. And, and has now grown to the point where, we're actually exploring more and more uh, civilian or commercial applications okay. of the same logistics and enterprise management uh, tools that we've been playing with just because those were the problems that were presented to us. Yeah. Yeah. In one sense, I guess the problems haven't changed. Probably the yeah. magnitude and maybe the way we approach it. But uh, I think it's always good. It feels good. To hear someone talk about the basics and going back to the principles. Yeah. Yes. Wonderful. Thank yeah. you. 
Okay. I, I sometimes I really do feel like and don't want to be, mm -hmm. but the grumpy gray-haired old man in the balcony saying, "Yeah, we tried that back in the late '80s, and here's why it didn't work." But <laughs> yeah. it, there are so many things that people are trying to solve again without having really ever learned yeah. the, the the history of of, of problem resolution and 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 you know, the application of computer technology and <laughs> in human experience. One of the things I, my own son has worked with me, uh, my middle son, Alex, has worked with me for 15 years. So he has a much more youthful, energetic, vibrant uh, disposition, and it, it serves him well. <laughs> so I, I try not to be the naysayer. But, but one of the things, the dynamics that we go back and forth on, is that when when I started, we're, we're similar age, um, there were all kinds of human processes that worked quite well without computers. Mm. And we were searching for ways to insert technology into existing human processes. Mm -hmm. The script has completely flipped by now. Yeah. And now we have all these digital processes that are 15 layers deep. Mm. Nobody really knows where it broke. And mm. we're trying to figure out how now do we reinsert human intelligence into a primarily digital economy <laughs> and it's the same problem just seen from the other end of the telescope so yeah yeah we will touch upon that a little later in terms of you know, they talk, talk about human in the middle for all these ai applications yes. and bring in a lot of automation yeah mm -hmm. first um you know from the military the moment even though you said you were in analytics and uh you know doing a lot of the cerebral stuff uh, i'm sure there were a lot of rules and processes to be followed and all the hierarchy. Actually, we were so early. Mm -hmm. um, there weren't many, oh. but those that were there, I broke regularly. Okay. Um, and one of the articles you wrote recently, and I'm, I'm going to mispronounce it, but it was about these concentric circles of learning where we're in the first phase, you, you do as you're told. In the second phase, you start, you know, breaking uh -huh. the rules yeah. and in the yeah. third phase you are your own rule set right so you know in phase one i was trying to do what the army told me to do mm -hmm. but the people who were running the technology mm -hmm. innovation of the army were brand new i mean they they you know i was already in the military when the military first got its hands on a personal computer and decided to field it I was I was in the field exercise in, in Washington State's desert, Yakima, hmm. when this division-level exercise they were experiencing for the very first time, hmm. a ruggedized computer in the hands of soldier hmm. uh, in, in a desert environment with dust. It was it was insane. And it, as you've anticipated, the, the military environment was more busy trying to write the rules uh -huh. than they were figuring out how to solve the problems of hmm. uh, one anecdote that I always enjoy, the first application they envisioned for this technology was communication. Makes mm. sense. I mean, you know, email, Twitter, everything, all the ways. So so they figured that in classic military bureaucratic sense, they would come up with a, a set of pre-formatted messages mm -hmm. that all you had to do was fill in the blank. And then they could ease the burden of transmission and communications just by communicating the message number and the blanks. Hmm. Well, after about 18 months of going to every organization in the military and trying to get them to quantify and, and enumerate what are the kinds of messages and what are the blanks, mm -hmm. at the very last minute, some high-level person said, 
we have got to have a, a complete free text message. Oh. Just one big blank and however many characters. You, so at the field exercise, it was something like 87% of all messages were the total free text. Okay. Trying to control the way can people communicate with each other. Well, heck, we're still trying to do that, aren't we? Uh, it's it It just didn't work. <laughs> and so, yeah, it's been a constant struggle of the attempt to centralize command and mm -hmm. control still going on now versus decentralize and let people do whatever the heck they want. And then that has dangers of its own. So, yeah, yeah the problem was born then, but it certainly hasn't died. Yeah. But how did it change when you became an entrepreneur, again, working with the military? Because now mm -hmm. you're not bound by the rules, but you still need to convince them or they need to uh, listen to you, right? The the, the um, ex excellent question. So the, the first thing that changed was the rank came off my collar because <laughs> when there's rank on your collar, that's the first thing they look at and then they figure out how much you know based on the color of the bar on your shoulder. Okay. So I got away from that. And once you get into the civilian world, the military tended to look at young civilians with more respect than young officers so oh, oh this is. must be some bright young whippersnapper straight out of you know california no i'm from the hills of east tennessee but <laughs> nevertheless i i had a greater opportunity to to speak to high level people without mm -hmm. them feeling like they were they were speaking to an inferior so so that oh. helped but the rules actually got worse because the military has one set of rules for guiding and controlling their own. And, and they know they've had the ultimate authority. You know, they can send you to, you know, Fort Leavenworth or court martial you if you don't do what you want. Mm -hmm. But among contractors, they, they are more paranoid about controlling what a government contractor can do. Mm. So there are libraries full of <laughs> documentation. The kind of running joke is you really can't do anything without breaking some rule. Yeah, because the only 2167A, I still remember. <laughs> exactly. So you, you just have to kind of gauge which rules the, the people who are paying the bills care most about and follow and comply with those. But the bureaucracy of defense contracting is immensely thick. Hmm. Uh, matter of fact, one of the early players in the defense automation industry was Hewlett Packard, and they just got fed up with it. <laughs> and and they 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 said they weren't going to sell computers to the military anymore. It, they mm. just weren't interested. And so their computers went civilian market and ultimately decided to make most of their money on printer ink. So <laughs> that that seems to have been profitable, but nowhere near as interesting to me. Yeah. So along with that, this whole uh, the entrepreneurial bug also has yes. a lot of uncertainties, right? You are also taking on a lot of responsibility for others. Right. Because once you get the contract and all that. So what pushed you into entrepreneurship? Because you did mention earlier that uh, you're from a family that was uh, more in the service of the nation, right? right? Um, it, it, yes. Uh, very insightful question. Uh, I'm going to answer it backwards. <laughs> so um, it was actually after, uh, shortly after I decided to start my own company, that my uncle, who had been in Army, civil service and military, uh, his whole career, shared with me a book his sister had written about our family history. Mm -hmm. And tucked in the back was a series of handwritten letters that my grandfather, mm -hmm. who died before I was born, 
had written to his girlfriend who became my grandmother. Mm -hmm. And as a part of the journey of his letter writing, he had decided to take a risk and start his own business. He was in the oh. ice delivery business. Okay. And and he decided that he he thought he could go it on his own. And his very first contract was in a brand new secret town in the hills of East Tennessee known as Oak Ridge that became Oak Ridge National Laboratories, part of the Manhattan Project. Hmm. He got the contract to deliver ice to that secret community. Oh. And that's how he got to start in business. Okay. So I don't know if that's genetics or not, but I certainly <laughs> felt the resonance. Yeah. My own story um, from grad school, when, when somebody contacted me, I went to work for that company and worked for them for seven years. They're they're no longer in business, Vitro Corporation, but they were still very bureaucratic, high-level defense contractor. And after seven years of working for them, I just got so tired of the games so fatigued with the ways that they were treating our clients and my staff. Mm -hmm. uh, I had at that point become a, a <laughs> they called it a regional manager, but that meant seven oh. people worked for me. Um, it, it wasn't much of a region uh, that there was a lot of straws, but, but the last straw, I, I just, I had had it and I said, I can do it myself. And it was, you know, risked everything I owned, second mortgage in my house, the whole thing. Um, got three people to agree to work for me, um, borrowed $5,000 and just went month to month, week to week, mm -hmm. you know, for, for years mm -hmm. until we finally got a little bit of a flywheel momentum and some reputation built. And, and it's grown very slowly, very organically from then, mm -hmm. but it really was a, a sense of frustration that I just don't like the way they're running this business I, I think I can do better myself. So it it really became a passion. I, I'll even go so far as to say a sense of calling that this is important to me to run a business the way I think it ought to be run, to treat clients the way I think clients ought to be treated, hmm. to treat treat staff the way I think to treat them the way I wanted to be treated. I would that was one of the reasons I went with uh in American rules. It's a it's a C corporation for tax purposes instead of an S or sole proprietorship. And so the main reason was I wanted to be an employee of my own company. Mm -hmm. I wanted to live by the same rules they live by. I didn't like this two-tier structure. <laughs> and uh, it's we celebrated our 30th anniversary a couple of weeks ago. So congratulations. Yeah. I, I think it might work. See, where I am based, you know, Bangalore is right. uh, known to be a tech hub and also a startup hub. Uh, there are a lot of youngsters who are ready to take the plunge, who are experimenting, but you also right. find many of them who want to be a unicorn overnight, or they right. think that if I just do something, what's my valuation, what, how do I exit, and so on. Now, having built an organization, now you said 30 years, uh, a few aspects, and I'm always sure. curious about, more from how does one become an entrepreneur with a long-term view, and right. With or working in tech, also developing an aptitude for people. Excellent, yeah. excellent question. Um, so many. I, one of the early stories I had when I was talking about thinking about starting, talking to people who had started their own business, I ran into one guy who, who basically had twenty programmers working for him, 
And he said he had found that the most effective way to treat them is to lock them in a basement and slide pizza under the door <laughs> and not let them interact with other human beings because they weren't good at it. Um, that wasn't the path I wanted. Yeah. Um, and, and I think a lot of it was back to the roots of I was in an environment with people who were solving problems without computers, and I just added computers, added technology to, to essentially human processes. I never let go of the value of working with end users, people who are trying to solve problems. In fact, half of my staff are not tech savvy. They're tech fluent, okay. but that's because we have immersed with each other but they are the classic senior analysts, subject matter experts, never written a line of code in their lives, but they understand what the computer is supposed to do. And they hold our feet to the fire internally before we expose our product. So um, there just a lot of uh, sad stories, but one of them, the early days of the, the army, the logistics center of the army is located in a city named Fort Lee, Virginia, and a huge installation. Mm -hmm. And they had the same kind of division. They had their military retirees and senior, senior military on the west side of, of the base. And they had all their young hired whippersnappers from Silicon Valley wearing flip-flops and Bermuda shorts mm -hmm. on the opposite side of the main highway. <laughs> and I was at several meetings where they would come together and try to get status on a project yeah they were both speaking english but you couldn't tell it they <laughs> could not communicate with each other hmm. and and that gap that gap's still there hmm. the gap between the the end user that really needs technology to solve a real world problem and the people out there writing the code you know i'm sure you're familiar with with the running joke of you know oh my god don't tell me you gave them what they asked for instead <laughs> of what they needed you know they <laughs> yeah. they don't I remember early in the early days of AI, you mm -hmm. know, one of the comments I read was that uh, everybody just panicked. We're going to all, all tech people are going to lose their jobs. It's like, relax. Mm -hmm. AI is going to do exactly what they ask it to do. There's mm -hmm. nothing to worry about mm -hmm. because people don't know how to express what they need from, from technology. And so bridging that gap with the people skills and the technical skills. I really think of it as a linguistics problem. You, mm -hmm. you have to be at least bilingual, mm -hmm. if not multilingual, in being able to communicate, uh, you know, even the gaps between production and finance, between engineering and production. You, you've, got, you've got to be able to learn a lot of different languages to include a lot of different computer languages and a lot of different layers of technology mm -hmm to orchestrate, to, mm -hmm. to get the harmony out of all of the different parts and instruments that are playing a role in the system, very much a systems approach. So because we've been incredibly intentional about maintaining that breadth of, of knowledge and background with people that actually can communicate with each other, mm -hmm. that's where I feel like it, it really hasn't been that journey of get in, get out, get rich. Uh, it, I, I had a, a professor in college that was known for advising his students, plant sequoias. Okay. Invest yourself in something that is going to far outlive you. Hmm. So, so that was early in my mindset. I, mm -hmm. I am here to start something. 
I tell my own board of directors, you know, what happens to this company after I'm gone is up to you, not me. Mm-hmm. You know, my, my exit strategy involves a coffin and, and, and a funeral service. That that's that's how I get out. Mm-hmm. But what happens after that is is up to the the people that have the the responsibility. And of course, of course, we're talking about it. I'm mm-hmm. I'm old enough to where they can tell. I've I've, <laughs> I've lost half a step, right? <laughs> I, I make a little, few more mistakes than I used to make, but but they're picking up the the slack and and redefining the roles in the way they they see the company proceeding, including my son. Okay. Um, a related point or a thought, sure. again, from comparing from military, normally we say it is all command and control. Uh, whereas, uh, yeah, I'm sure it's there in the military as well. Uh, software is more of a team sport, right? When you talk about yes. understanding the needs, and then uh, solving it, and it's probably not one person who's going to solve it. Whether it is um, in the team of the people who are developing the solutions or the users who need to use this. I particularly like the name of your company when you say integrated information systems, right? So thank you. And how do you ensure that the your clients become an integrated organization. I asked him about how he ensures that his client organizations become integrated, as his company name includes, as software development is a team sport. The answer to that question and a lot more in the next part of our conversation in the next episode. Don't miss it. We thank Siddharth for the music and Anita for promoting the software people stories. If you like this episode, please subscribe on your favorite podcast client and spread the word in your network. If you'd like to share your story, contact us at podcasts at pm-powerconsulting.com.